Happy New Year's from the Legislators Podcast. This is Terrence Wall, your host. The Legislators Podcast is looking forward to 2021. It's a podcast that shares stories, opinions, and ideas from men and women who lead in their towns, schools, the counties, and the state. Influencers, men and women who are making a difference and are part of the change for the better in the state of New Jersey and beyond. Today, we're very thrilled to have a very special guest. We are... Uh, discussing a very important topic with lifelong resident in Middletown, Nikki Tierney. Nikki is a former attorney and mother of four who recovered from substance abuse and went on to graduate from Monmouth University with degrees in social work and drug counseling. Tierney is actively trying to shape a career as a counselor, but cannot due to a previous charge. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about criminal justice reform in New Jersey and specifically issues such as exoneration and pardons and commuting sentences and the important work that's happening in Trenton and how it dovetails with their legislation and the progressive initiatives to make a real difference for lives of New Jersey families. Also recently, it should be noted that in Middletown, in light of the stigma-free community resolution that was passed, Mayor Tony Perry urged the meeting attendees there to call the governor and request executive clemency for Tony, quote, so that she can help people, not only just in Middletown, but across Monmouth County and across the state of New Jersey and helping them get out of darkness and see that light. That was Mayor Perry. Welcome, Nikki. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, re I really appreciate the opportunity for legislators to help me be heard and help others be heard as well. Oh, you're, you're so welcome. You know, really, you're a voice not simply for yourself today, but the way I see it and why it's so important that you're here is that you're a voice for so many other folks and we're going to speak to the fact that we're not able to exactly know how many there are, but so many other folks that are ready, willing and able to make a productive difference in their lives and the, and the lives of their family, their children, their extended family and the community around them. But for specific relief, the kind of relief that the governor can give. And so we wanted him to be able to hear this story as well. So for the folks that are part of the Trenton establishment, we ask that you forward this audio so the governor during his commute, perhaps when he's at his home, you know, and he's he's your neighbor, right, Nikki? He lives near, near you in Middletown. <laughs> yes, right? well, I, <laughs> he lives in uh, well, a little bit on a different side. I, I live in the Belford section of Middletown. Um, yes, I have been a resident of this town uh, since I'm six years old. He recently called my cousin. My cousin was one of the young boys from Middletown North that saved the two children who had almost drowned in the pond. Um, he's, you know, been a coach of many people I know. Our paths have crossed. So we have a lot in common. And I definitely, you know, am a lifelong resident of Middletown. Absolutely. Well, you know, so here's what we're able to do. We're able to save you guys taking a nice healthy exercise walk on the Henry Hutchins trail. And you could just get together right now on legislators and we can talk about important issues. Uh, so, Hey, let's get right to it. Um, in New Jersey, the state is considered front facing and forward thinking as far as criminal justice reform and um, bringing folks back into uh, active careers, active engagement, uh, stigma-free, moving things forward in a positive way from a legislative standpoint. Can you talk about that a little bit so folks get a primer and they understand, well, why are we listening today? W what is New Jersey doing? And then we'll get on to the next step. Absolutely. So I'll put on kind of my my legal background here for a second and explain that 
there is a nonprofit. It's called Collateral Consequences Resource Center, and it's headed by some criminologists, some law professors, some you know nationally renowned attorneys who deal with the criminal justice system. And what they have found is that New Jersey, out of the 43 states ranked, is the reintegration champion. That's under Governor Murphy. I have heard him speak on this. I just recently heard him say he, he truly understands. And just to be clear, what collateral consequences are is in New Jersey, there's about uh, l- roughly 1,100. At the federal level, there's 1,000. And there are administrative consequences flowing from a conviction. Now, the conviction can be for one thing or another. And these, some 2,000 total, flow to all convictions. So regardless of what your crime was, they're not tailored to, for example, you know, if, if you had, you know, you stole checks. Okay, you can't be in the banking industry. They're, they're very widespread and about 70% relate to unemployment, um, to employment opportunities, licensing, uh, going back to school and the other are housing. And so they're crippling. They're actually referred to as the new civil death. And as best I can tell, not only through his words, but through his actions and the legislation he has passed, Governor Murphy and his administration is committing to chances and and getting them out from under these collateral consequences. So, you know, Nikki, I'm looking at their their updated uh, studies and they do show uh, misdemeanor relief, for example, in A, but pardons are an F. Uh, why, why are we failing in that regard? I think that obviously right now, I, I have to say this on a personal level, you know, what, Two weeks after having cancer surgery, uh, we faced the greatest pandemic from a health perspective. And Governor Murphy is just undoubtedly a very busy man. I think that it needs to be delegated. And I think that the reason we rank so low in pardon is because we're under the impression we've got these wonderful laws that will take care of clemency. So the clemency or pardon basically does the same thing as an expungement would or the same thing as a clean slate would. And we, again, are, we, re, we ruled the country in being the most progressive state and the reintegration champion. The problem is the execution. So I think that the theory is, is that I don't need to pardon because we've got laws in place to help these people. But in fact, the laws are failing. And so many people like myself go to the clemency or pardon. But none have been given, to my knowledge, none have been given under his administration. You know, and so for the average lay person, they someone's convicted of a felony. They they, they do their time. They uh, or, or however that's resolved. Um, and then they they live with those consequences because they created that situation in, in whatever uh, ways or means that may be. So for the pardon process or expungement and that type of thing, that's usually brings about some special circumstances for, for the layperson. If I'm thinking about how, what a layperson, how they would perceive that. Um, what are some of the extenuating circumstances? Uh, use you as an example. You have an extensive story of going the extra mile and creating so much value. Um, how, does that, how does that fare in, in terms of the calculations of a governor or the folks that are there to support the governor and vet the information where it's uh, it results in a conversation where it's look, governor, we really ought to act on this for for your situation, which we'll talk about or other similar situations, because it ties to our legislative initiatives and it furthers 
our statewide goals. Yeah, and, and I think exactly that. Again, New Jersey has passed the clean slate law, which is amazing. It says after 10 years, all of your entire history will be wiped clean. New Jersey also, this was actually under Governor Christie's administration, passed a law that said anybody who successfully graduates from the drug court program, which is one of the most onerous programs there is of recovery, will automatically be entitled to what's called a conditional expungement. We will seal your record so long as you don't reoffend. So both of these programs have inner balances of the people have clearly rehabilitated after 10 years of not offending again, or after going through the rigorous drug court program, which is five years, screenings, all, so many, there's very, there's many internal safeguards to make sure these people have changed. So you're supposed to apply, get the expungement and go about your way. There's two issues which lead to our D ranking and our F ranking in our report card. And they are, the first is that this is all done in the dark. This is like a Marco Polo. Because everything is sealed and confidential, we don't know who applies. We don't know if they were denied or granted. And we certainly don't know when they're denied, why they were denied. And what that is called in, you know, again, just for the layperson, it's called the uptake rate. And so in New Jersey, the only information I've been able to find is the drug court program which says that every successful graduate is entitled to an expungement. The uptake rate of that is less than 20%. Since that law has been entered, we've had over 5,000, almost 6,000, I believe, graduates that should be eligible and should get the expungement. The legislator made a declaration. New Jersey taxpayers spend about $80 million a year on drug court. When people come out of drug court, we believe they have a tremendously high success rate. They've gone through school. We want them to be able to be productive members of society, earning income that can be taxed. We want them to support and have housing. So that being said, with such clarity, the legislator passed this law. But then what happens is a case like mine. And that's why Judge Kilgallen O'Brien said on the record, Nicole, you're not the only one in this situation. I have many mothers and I'm sure some fathers as well who like me, fit in this gap of uncertainty, and she has to deny our request for an expungement. She apologized to me. She implored me to appeal it and wish me luck on the record. This is all on the record. She also noted that the drug court judges have meetings, and they've all expressed how difficult this is. And so it's kind of um, a form over substance. Everybody agrees I should have this expungement, pardon, clemency, whatever word we want to use, but I can't get it. I'm in a Gordian knot, and I am not the only one. A 20% efficiency rate is deplorable. It's just too let me, Yeah, let me understand something. So you referenced 5,000, right? And a 20% uptake rate? Yes. Okay. So is that simple math where 4,000 folks are eligible and not potentially not appropriately adjudicated in their efforts? But we don't know. And see, this we is don't know. another important thing. There's one state in America who has recently done a study to get actual data and evidence to know what's going on. And it's Michigan. And the study was published in Harvard Law Journal. It is just, it is a seminal study. 
Now in Michigan, it was done over a five-year period. Their uptake rate under just the general um, clean slate statute was 6.5. That means of all people eligible, only 6.5 got them. For the people that did get them, the people within that 6.5, within the first year of receiving an expungement, their income and employment trajectory trajectory increased by 22%. 22%. And then this is the most important takeaway that lay people and the governor and the legislators need to understand. And they, I believe the study was over a five-year period. The reconviction rate for people who are granted expungements is almost similar to the general public. So it's not a safety issue. It's not a deterrence issue. None of the theories of punishment are being satisfied by this lifelong scarlet letter of felon. And if anything, you're increasing recidivism because you're making people present day lepers. We can't, you know, we can't if you can, even if you, can re- you know, it's very difficult. Well, you know, I'd like you to repeat that a little more slowly because part of the challenge, I'm assuming for any elected official uh, is the fear of making a decision um, in, with the best of intentions. And uh, for example, uh, there's, there's stories across the country, uh, whether folks that are let out on bail that should not have been let out on bail and, and commit murder, or folks that are uh, receive probation uh, and against the wishes of the families and other different, uh, I'm thinking of more capital items, but but and then the judges come to very gravely regret it because they uh, made a decision that resulted in further harm to the either the individual or the families or the communities, whether it's financial or otherwise uh, physical, what have you, um, and that they end up owning a decision that resulted in uh, further harm in some way, shape or form. So whether it's um, fear or another uh issue for the authorities, the whether it be the governor or the different folks that are involved. Let us know again what you just said about the compared to the general public, the reoffense rate for folks who move beyond this process. It, it was basically indistinguishable. It was slightly higher. And that's why evidence and data is so important because we can figure out which people are being reconvicted. Now, let's take an example of someone like me. My underlying action that is, is a, and a felony, by the way, is a crime punishable by upwards of six months. So lots of behavior falls under the felony label. In my instance, I was intoxicated at the beach in the presence of my son, who was three at the time, and I passed out and I was charged with endangering the welfare of a child which, because he suffered emotional distress seeing me in such a condition. So that being said, um, if if, if we move forward, the reason that happened was I had a substance use disorder. Once I treat the substance use disorder, I've never been involved. I was an attorney. I was never involved in any criminal action whatsoever. So another thing that I think people have to look at is we now, the vast majority of people involved in our criminal justice system, many of it is drug related. And so if we, and and the drugs are not the issue, 
the drugs are a symptom that the drugs and alcohol are a maladaptive coping mechanism to an underlying condition. So once in my case, I addressed my undiagnosed mental illness, my substance use disorder went away. And so there's no, absolutely really no danger to anyone. In fact, I have had custody of the very victim on the day of the beach since 2008. He has become more of a victim by this felon label. I can't be a class parent. I can't volunteer as a coach. I make, from an earned income perspective, we live in poverty, if not deep poverty, because I can't get a job. We live in my parents' house because we can't find housing. What is happening is not, this is no longer punishing the felon or having an effect on a felon. It's just passing it to their relatives. And so I think it's really important for people to know that if anything, not granting second chances increases the risk of recidivism rather than granting a second chance. And more importantly, with the drug court um, statute, it's only conditional. If I were to reoffend, my my past history comes right back. And what is a better predictor of the future than the past? I was arrested for that in 2007. This September, it will be 14 years, 14 long years I've lived with this, unable to access the most fundamental rights that a person can. And that is the issue. And more importantly, as you mentioned, I now have a degree. We are not only in a health, physical health um, pandemic, but we have seen overdoses at historic rates, death by suicide, as well as mental health diagnosis. I graduated with a 4.0 from Monmouth University. Uh, I have full support of everybody. The National Board of Certified Counselors knows about my record and allowed me to sit for the exam. But because of my actions almost 14 years ago, I can't empower people in New Jersey. I, I can't become a licensed clinician. So not only am I suffering, but so is the public. And not that I'm going to save the world, but number one, I could earn money that could be taxable. Number two, you could have another frontline worker in the mental health industry. Number three, my children would no longer have to be embarrassed and have to deal with this. And number four, I could truly get the second chance that New Jersey seemingly believes in. Well, they certainly see it in Middletown Township, where, where the mayor resides and where Mayor Tony, uh, sorry, the governor resides and Mayor Tony uh, Perry is uh, currently seated in his third term with his peers. Uh, you're volunteering currently, assisting folks. Uh, on the Alliance. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So what happened, um, I, I volunteered with Long Branch Hearers. I volunteered with the Alliance in Middletown. Each township has what they call alcohol and drug drug abuse alliance or drug addiction. And um, I volunteered there. I do as much community service as I can. And, and just, you know, anecdotally, I reached out to the township council and Governor Murph. Uh, I'm sorry, Mayor Perry and said, listen, here's my background. Here's my situation. Within one day, I was invited to come in and talk with them. And I've been able to mention to them the stigma free programs, different resources we have and how to make our township better. Because the, the leadership in Middletown cares tremendously. We are seeing record levels of children and adolescents, no doubt from the lockdown and all of the pressure, have mental health diagnosis. And Middletown has some great resources. So these leaders are committed to reducing stigma and not burdening our children with a felon because of criminalization of a disease, a mental health disorder. And that's not at all to say that people should just, you know, 
get a pat on the head and receive no consequences. Not at all. But let's make them better or let's protect them from doing those things anyway. We all know that the burglaries, the car thefts, you know, having having rampant substance use disorder in town is not good, as well as the police officers having to respond and administer Narcan. This is taking its toll on the public. We can't run from this anymore. And so, you know, I understand that the governor and the mayors and, you know, the legislators, I, I, I believe five senators and at least six assembly people, uh, the Judiciary Committee, all unanimously approved the legislation. And I know they have a lot going on, but everybody in theory supports this and understands this. This is no longer a not my child, not my family, not me. This is an issue that's going to continue to occur. And I think we need to get out in front of it to the extent that can still be done. Well, hopefully you're doing that right now, because most folks are probably not aware that the Collateral Consequences Resource Center, uh, which would be, I think, in pretty, pretty fine alignment with the state of New Jersey and, and the, uh, the, the politics of the state, gets a D in felony relief, an F in pardons and a C in employment and a C in occupational licensing. Because, you know, we were talking earlier, you, you had referenced part of the story about part of what impacts not just you, but also, remember, you mentioned 5,000 folks that would be eligible for expungement according to a law that apparently had bipartisan support with uh, the clean slate law that was back with uh, former Governor Christie. Yes. Oh, that's that's actually the um, drug court expungement. Yes. But there okay, would right. be, yes, close to 5000 people. Their income would increase 22 percent. Well, and that's taxable income, which uh, which helps fund uh, you know state efforts, but also help uh, pay for families, uh, you know, their uh, kids and putting food on the table. But what's interesting is that you're not able to get that data. What happened to not just the Nikki Tierney's, the other 4000 folks, because, you know, if something's not public, it's 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 interesting to me that at least the, you know, the the, the metadata or the, the basic data, you know, redacted information that shows 4000 folks. Here's their current status. Here's the county they reside in. Here's the situation. And, you know, redacting names and individual situations. But it's pretty shocking that that data, the raw data is not available uh, from a public standpoint. I would hope that that's not the case. Uh, I don't know if any folks requests and otherwise look for that data under Freedom of Information Act. But that would that would help the folks that suffer in silence, because, you know, when it comes to pardons and commutation of sentences and things of that nature, as we see, and this is on a bipartisan basis, both Republican and Democrats, it's typically for uh, the the rich, the friends, uh, the folks with connections. But isn't this type of relief uh, really supposed to be for the folks who meet certain criteria, certain guidelines. Uh, for example, if the 4,000 folks that are eligible for expungement, if they meet the criteria, then should there not be a list presented to the governor of all the folks that are eligible uh, to rejoin society? You even said, you mentioned earlier, you could have difficulty getting a simple life insurance policy for your children because all of these things are in the application phase and, and also the licensing for your uh, your studies. Right. 
Absolutely. And so that's such an interesting point, because when the drug court expungement statute was passed, they waived the fee. The fee to file a petition for expungement right now is $75. That is a barrier to many people. So put that aside. So drug court, if when you go to file your petition for clemency, I mean, I'm sorry, excuse me, expungement under drug court, I didn't have to pay the fee. I graduated top of my class from Rutgers Law in Newark with, you know, numerous distinctions. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Filling out the petition is so onerous and, and just so complex. And then you have to send a certified copy to each per- each institution you've been involved with, which costs probably another $300 in mailing fees. It's just exorbitant. So that being said, I have no doubt that that's part of why we have such a ridiculously low uptake rate. So what we need, and now the voters have spoken, we want marijuana legalized, not only decriminalized, legalized. And as part of that, they're going to expunge and you know let people out and all of this. How is that going to get done? Does anyone think it's going to be any different than me? There's going to be a hot, there's going to be thousands of people that are entitled to expungements of their marijuana convictions going back 20, 30, 40 years, but can't get them. And that's why what I have suggested, and I've tried to join these task force, I've, I've applied online, I've reached out to the governor, I've made it public, to, to, there's software that can do automatic expungements. Like I'm sure you're familiar if you get a ticket, and you go one year without getting a ticket, it comes off your license automatically. Bankruptcy, 10 years. There are plenty of automatic systems like this. The software they estimate would cost about six cents per expungement. And then people's records would automatically be cleansed. And we'd have, instead of a D, an A. And again, from society's perspective, there's the reoffense rate is almost that of the general public. And we're increasing our tax base. And and again, on an individual level, I can tell you, you're going to decrease the amount of people on public assistance. When I first got sober and I started out on this journey, I was on food stamps, uh, utility help, you know, uh, family care. Just horrific because I can't get a job. I don't have a license. I don't have everything. And I have barriers. And so I think it's really important for society to understand how much it's costing the taxpayers. People say, oh, you know, this or that. What it is, is when people can't work, they need to rely on social services. We will take so much weight off our social services if we let people who want and can work back into the workforce. Just that simple. Again, out of a thousand collateral consequences, 60% relate to barriers to employment. That's a fascinating number. And, you know, you mentioned earlier having some software, having a program to be able to um, address all of the folks that are involved. Unfortunately, as, as folks know, and, and the governor has shared his dismay uh, on different issues uh, of infrastructure, unemployment, motor vehicles, uh, we can't seem to get out of our own way. So it, perhaps it makes it difficult to look at some of these items, which is why we're talking today as well, is to really clarify what it is. And it sounds very simple to quickly ascertain who is eligible to identify them. Uh, And based on what you told me uh, so far today, it doesn't sound like there's an ombudsman. So it sounds like you're on your own after you are eligible, you are on your own 
to navigate the bureaucracy. Is that correct? Or do they have ombudsmans? Do, no, you, do they have no, folks that help? There's no help. And basically, again, you know, as a former practicing attorney, most of the attorneys I talk to won't even take on expungement cases because they can't charge enough for how time and labor intensive it is. It's just this old fashioned system that I can't even explain to you. Took me hours to do mine. And, and again, for attorneys, you know, if you say, all right, this is going to take me 10 hours, I'll charge $1,000. Who can really afford that when guess what? Likely you're, you're not working at your highest and best use. You have reduced income and you're a hundred percent correct that it, it doesn't have to be as complicated as we've made it. And because there is no judicial oversight, like we don't have the compliance and we're not looking at the numbers and most people don't probably understand what a, you know, an uptake gap is and why it is. I don't think we're realizing how bad we're failing. And I think in on the stigma topic, because it's quote unquote, a group of felons, I'm not so certain that they're receiving the attention and compassion, uh, you know, more aesthetically, you know, whatever group might. And I think that's really important because there are a lot of people who are not defined by their darkest decision or their worst day or their worst hour. They've rehabilitated and and they're good citizens and they deserve a second chance. And let's talk about that for a minute because, you know, the folks can look at that as a population of individuals um, that are within a certain box, but it's really not a box. It's more of a sieve, isn't it? So for the average person, who may be a neighbor um, or, or uh, in the same town, in the same area, who, who is conducting their life as they would, that say the following, I'm interested to know how you'd respond to it, for, uh, again, we use a, a, a layperson a concept, where they might say, listen, you got arrested for a felony. That's your problem. Um, on the on first blush, you might say, um, well, you know, you're right. That, that is my problem. However, there are many different reasons why any individual ought to know that it's not just my problem. It's really our collective problem. So can you share a little bit of how the secondary impacts and tertiary impacts of not um, properly adjudicating uh, and improving the, the, the uptake, I believe the term was you used, uh, for folks that are already eligible, but somehow, somehow in that Gordian knot, how it does in fact impact folks that have nothing to do with the, 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 the main matter at hand, that there is a felony, that there is a process of, of various stripe, but that it does impact their world as well. How does it impact the folks that may think it does not impact them at all, as far as whether it be school, education, um, family relationships, and uh, uh, neighborhood dynamics, and that kind of thing? How do you share, share how it actually impacts everyone? Well, again, every now and then I hear don't commit the crime if you can't do the time. And and that, you know, is an adage for whatever it's worth. Um, but the, the issue I think people are missing are felons have. And I don't even like that label. I don't even like to use the words. We have done our time. I have completed my probation uh, over 10 years ago. I have paid thousands in fines. I have done everything asked. I have not reoffended. I have 1000% 
done my time. But with collateral consequences, and I'll give an extreme example, tomorrow they could pass a law and say, again, quote unquote, felons can no longer have driver's license. That is how nonsensical, arbitrary, and capricious collateral consequences are. They are not tied to safety. They are not tied to, you know, deterrence. They're not tied to anything. So when people say, yeah, but again, that's your problem, not mine. As a country, as a state, we need to be as competitive as we are. And having an entire group of people, especially now with the increase of people being involved in the judicial system as a result of substance use disorders, you're sidelining a lot of professionals. You're sidelining a lot of people with what I what we refer to as lived experiencing. And all you're doing is shifting the cost. So in other words, if I don't make it, when I was an attorney, practicing attorney, I was paying $40,000 in federal income tax a year and whatever. My I graduated in 1997. I started for more money in 1997 at my first position than I've ever made since becoming sober. Can you not imagine that? Now, again, I'm not paying taxes. I'm not contributing. I'm not at my highest and best use. You have someone who's totally capable of living. Um, I, I, you know, we don't live on our own. We're not paying property taxes, all of these things. So in reality, it may sound like a you problem, but really it's an us problem. It's not a me problem. And so as, as a collective society, we can't just think, oh, that doesn't apply to me. It applies to everybody. And I don't know, again, it, leaving the finances aside, what type of demoralization we can impose on people and not think, why do we have such a high rate of recidivism? Why are we spending so much incarcerating people? We spend more incarcerating people than we could to cure them. So really, all the taxpayers pay for all of this, not just arguing for, for Nikki Tierney, but as a taxpayer, Again, $80 million a year on drug court, but all the graduates don't pay taxes when they get out. Why are we get what 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 is that? There's no rate of invest of return on investment there. I mean, let's make logical, sensical, and moral decisions. Let's not keep so moving the goalposts on people. Yeah. So so what we're learning from this conversation is that there are um, folks who go through the process um, and succeed. And statutes that speak to expungement, excuse me, expungement and things of that nature. Right. And that would allow them to no longer be barred from engaging in professional licensing, serving as a class president for their uh, for their their child, for a host of other different things that you're mentioning. Um, And the governor, uh, the state, perhaps prior to this governor as well, we're getting an F for uh, pardons. The pardon process itself is that simply a stroke of a pen? Yeah. Or yes, it would take the governor. You know, again, I I submitted mine months ago, and it's it's very, you know, it has a lot of information in there. But it would literally take one signature. My life, my children's life, our tax life would be completely transformed. Talk to me about who has advocated for you directly to the governor, publicly. I I, I so many people. Like other than a couple people on social media, Governor, um, I'm sorry, Mayor Perry has all the town councils, all of my professors. I actually what happened just to back up here one second. I um, 
I didn't know what else to do and I couldn't be heard. So I, I tried to think out of the box. So I started a petition online and I just told my story and I explained much of what I'm explaining here. I couldn't believe it. We have over to date 9,300 signatures, law enforcement officers, attorneys, people in recovery, all of my professors at Monmouth. I met with the president of Monmouth University. Um, again, the National Board of Counselors Associations. I really, I can't think of anybody, uh, Senator Gopal, Senator um, O'Scanlan, Senator Singleton, numerous um, assembly people uh, supported, Assemblyman Schaffenberger, DeMasso, Howley. I, 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 there's really just so, I'm sorry, Downey, I'm mixing up names. Um, even Senator Pinocchio has come out on, in my favor. Um, Jamal Hawley, Assemblyman Hawley, I'm sorry, Assemblyman Armada. Again, when the legislation that is pending went through the Judiciary Committee, it went through um, and, and unanimously. It went, you know, bipartisan. Uh, Senator Sandra Cunningham up north, um, Senator Scutari. So there's so much support for this, but for whatever reason, it's just languishing. Again, like the, I use the term Gordian knot because that's what I feel like we're stuck in. But I don't think that people understand what a personal impact it can have. Again, I am very fortunate. I have my parents have housing for us. Um, you know, I'm okay. But there are some people whose basic needs cannot be met because they are branded a felon. And we've Point. committed as a state that we find this important. And we are the reintegration champ who right now isn't playing a good game. You know, I'm an athlete. I was a Division two academic All-American two years in a row. So I look at it like if I have the best inbounds play, but I can't execute it, what good is my coach? I'm only going to be as good as my execution. If I can't, you know, if miss the front end of a one and one, what good is that? We've got to yeah, execute and you're, these things. And you're in many ways a quarterback for a team, and we don't know who all your teammates are. Right. Right? Exactly. I don't know how many people are on my team. I don't know where they come from. I don't know what they do. I don't know what they can do. We don't know these people's potential. Can you imagine how many people are not reaching their rigor because they're in the dark? We don't know. It's interesting to be fighting essentially a battle in a state that ostensibly agrees with your position. Again, yes. Again, and I, I feel so bad because I know I left people out. I the many elected officials, I cannot explain how humane they've been to me. They've given me their cell phones. They call. They reach out again. They are Perry the next day coming to meet with me, shaking hands. I've been treated so kindly, but we haven't been able to, again, proverbially cross the finish line. We can't convert. We, we can't win. And we need well, we need it, to win. Well, if fear, you know, possibly politics, of course. But if fear is a concern, I think through this podcast, that's been addressed in that the recidivism rate for folks is, you mentioned a slight tick different, but essentially a wash or, or a small positive hire uh, for folks who have gone through the program. Right. And have, right? Absolutely. And again, this is why I've offered so many times to volunteer, because I think this is critical for drug court. I believe 30,000 a year apply 
and less than 10% are admitted. That may be the wrong number, but the point is it is extremely difficult to even be admitted to drug court. You cannot have any sexual crimes. You cannot have violent crimes. You cannot have second degree crimes. So when we get to the point of getting into drug court, making it through three to five year process of being watched, you have to call your probation officer daily. You have random drug tests, multiple trips to the courthouse, all of this, you know, again, assistance, support. By the time you get to the place of expungement, the public has to realize the people I know are just phenomenal. I know so many people from drug court that I graduated with that have gone on to do different things. They're they're working in the recovery field, but they can't get the ultimate license because, again, we're pariahs in society. So if you look at the numbers, and again, that's what I pleaded for is just to have them. I don't want names. I don't want anything like that. Let's figure out how are we missing the mark? What isn't working? Are we, you know, not, are we cutting under the pick when we should be going over the top? What are we doing that's fouling up what, again, on paper is a winning play? On paper, we can't be stopped, but we're losing every game. And that sounds like uh, there might be uh, some new legislation in there to, uh, you know, disgorge certain elements of information redacted appropriately. So the, the full brunt of the issue can be can be common knowledge and you can only uh, fashion solutions when you actually understand what you're working with. Yeah, it's um, policy making in the dark. We and I, I fully appreciate that the whole idea of an expungement and people say to me, "What? You're all over pouting about your 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 history," which you know, in a certain way, kind of makes it moot at this point. But the whole idea is for confidentiality, which I support 100%. I don't want to know any names. I don't want any information. But what I want is the data because that data, like the Michigan study will help us so much on so many levels, help society and individuals and most importantly, and Nikki, the families of the individuals, because they're the ones really paying the price. Well, and we're going to speak to them because we want to, before we wrap up, we want to identify a few different audiences and uh, for you to share a few words with them. And one of the audiences, it will be the, uh, the governor who I'm hoping listens to this podcast because he's able to really get a, an elongated uh, story a lot of data that uh, he may not get in a one minute meeting with one of his uh, uh, staff members uh, going between different press conferences. So this, I think, hopefully is very helpful and educational for him. Um, But on the legislation side, I wanted to make sure we discussed any active or potential or pending uh, rather legislation that uh, you wanted to talk to, if there is any or 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 not yeah, no, is there anything is pending or anything active this is that's- very important there is s241 which has been read into the record three times and is ready for a vote that is sponsored the prime sponsor is senator scutari i've reached out to his office numerous times i don't know why it's not been submitted for a vote i had spoken with the general counsel for Senate President Sweeney, I was under the impression he supported it. Again, there are numerous sponsors on it. It came out of the judiciary bipartisan. I don't know why it's not being submitted for a vote. Then um, on the corollary for that is Assembly 2312, which has great support 
And that wouldn't go forward since S241 has already gone so far. And then uh, Senator Vingo Powell has been just amazing. He's drafted an alternative bill, S2951, to help as well. And I, I believe the corollaries, A2312, Assemblyman Schaffenberger and Downey have been amazing supporters for that, too. And I would also note that the um, Volunteer of America's Delaware Valley heard about my story and they have contributed $10,000 for Megan Davies, who runs the Delaware Innocent Project to represent me with regards to all of this. So, I mean, the outpouring has just been amazing, but I don't want an attorney. I don't want $10,000 in legal fees. We can, this is that simple. It's that simple. We should be able to figure this out very quickly, not waste any more of the state's time, not waste any more of elected leaders' time, and just get this thing moving. And I think even the elected leaders, they're thinking beyond the, the poignancy of your story for all of the other folks that are suffering in silence uh, that they don't and they don't know their stories yet. You know, uh, for Senator Gopal, who's been working very aggressively in Monmouth County on various pieces of legislation and also Assembly um, and uh, Scharfenberger, what would their legislation do specifically so folks understand? So, again, because of this kind of the way it was inartfully drafted, the expungement the drug court expungement statute references a list of crimes which can never be expunged, one of which is child abuse and child endangerment. When I pled guilty, I pled guilty to making my child abused or neglected within the definition set forth in Title IX, which is a fourth degree, it's a misdemeanor. So basically I was sentenced under a felony, but it was a misdemeanor for women who may have been driving while intoxicated with a child in the car, for a woman who may have had possession of drugs or something like that. So again, nobody dangerous in terms of, it, it, it's just, I don't, I don't wanna use that word because it, it could be, you know, I don't wanna stigmatize anybody else, but to get into drug court, you, you they don't allow second degree crimes. They only allow crimes related specifically to substance use disorder. To get out of drug court and successfully graduate, you have to have addressed your substance use disorder. I have a certificate of rehabilitation under the uh, Convicted Offenders Act. So I've clearly demonstrated rehabilitation as the other 5,000 graduates have. Quite frankly, let's make the law work and give those people the expungement. And so what the legislators are now doing is going back to try to amend the first law to make it a little clearer that people like me, the other 5,000 people, should be getting these expungements. But for some reason, it's just lost in the quagmire of the political process. And COVID, again, I, I totally understand COVID. But the, the, the thing that I think we're missing, again, is for somebody like me and many people, I can help relieve the consequences of COVID a little bit. I would be a first-line mental health responder. I can help. I can pitch in rather than being home and sidelined. Put me in, Coach. I'm and, and quite play. candidly. You know what I, I mean? Like, let's go. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, let's be realistic. Most of the folks, uh, if they think about it, they can walk and chew gum at the same time. You know, uh, they have, people have busy days, busy careers. And however, when you're elected to serve, um, it's part of the challenge that you've experienced is, is not the yes or the no, it's the the maybe 
the possibility, the months uh, upon months of waiting for some clarity uh, for whether it's yourself or other folks that are similarly situated. And so part of part of the goal here in our conversation is trying to cut through, frankly, the clutter. There's so much information out there for all the elected officials and, and the governor as well to sift through um, and to be able to get a, a clear understanding of, of this issue, which is not a simple one. No, it does no. have uh, yeah. various aspects to it. But, you know, the the reality is, is that it's essentially a wash with the recidivism rate. That's extremely important for lay people to understand. Um, and that can help folks, uh, the everyday folks that haven't experienced these challenges to support those initiatives uh, instead of that being more of a, a politically vexing one, because the data you mentioned, the Michigan study or other studies that may be out there. Um, but what would you say to the legislators that are listening? What would be your message to uh, the legislators about getting behind certain rules or rather uh, pieces of legislation? What would you say to them today? Well, as a practical matter, I think you're right. Man- many people are worried about being soft on crime giving somebody a second chance and making the wrong decision and somebody getting hurt, all valid concerns. I would ask them, though, to talk to people like me, look at this and look at the information and know that you're actually hurting more people by not doing this. I, I can't tell you the stress that we're putting on our social system or, you know, social resources our lack of competitiveness as a state or, you know, ever everything. Again, what's happening isn't, you know, only the felon suffering. For example, as I explained, you know, I believe in one of the articles, my daughter goes to, I have triplets who are in college and you're only guaranteed on-campus housing for a certain amount of time just to move off campus. She needs the apartment lease co-signed. Guess what? It asks if I'm a felon. It asks if the co-signer is a felon. So now my daughter, who's going to be a productive member of society and is in school, can't move off campus because, you know, so again, it's not just me or how much, what do we know about successful children? They have parents very involved in their lives. I I can't be involved in my children's life because of, again, this branding of a felon. So you're worried about something going wrong, but not paying attention to all the things that are going wrong. And, and it's this fanciful, you know, okay, in my case, we don't want to be involved with anyone who hurt a child. Talk to my child. My child has begged, for, all of my children have begged to be heard by the governor. We've reached out to the Monmouth County Prosecutor's Office. We've asked people to talk to us. Talk to my family. I do live in Middletown. Let the governor ask around about my reputation. I know they can't do that, obviously, for every person, but get to know these people who you've branded felons. And you'll see, we don't pose a danger. We don't pose a danger. And let's talk, and let's talk to, to another uh, audience that you just referenced. Other folks that are in similar situations that, are, that maybe haven't even contacted you, but, but are watching what you're doing, and they're watching and waiting and hoping. What, what would you like to say to the, to the, to the, to the other uh, Nikki Tierneys out there that are listening right now and hopeful of change? What, what's right, that, might, that? that might be my favorite question of all, because let me tell you this. That is the silver lining of this entire process. How many people have, through the media articles, through social media, through the petition, reached out to me and said, whoa, I can't believe there's somebody else like me. I'm in the same position. Please don't tell anyone or I'm afraid of this. And then a couple of people who are completely 
out about it. Like I have forged some friendships and I would tell them we're not leaving anybody behind. We're all getting out of this. We're all getting our second chances. We are going to be heard. We're going to be a voting block at some point. We are, I've already talked with quite a few people of, you know, organizing formally. But again, some people have to be very careful because they're embarrassed. And because of the stigma, they don't want it known. But we are motivating. We are. And and again, we're going to do this. And I just I know because I oftentimes feel demoralized. And I know that a lot of them are in way worse positions than me in terms of how close they are to the finish line. We're going to do this. And I, I am a team player and I'm not going to leave anybody behind. I'm going to keep on doing all I can to be heard and, um, you know, just just hang in there. That's that's about this is what I give myself because quitting is not an option. We can't. We owe it to the other people in our group. You know, it'd be easy. It'd be well, easy let's... for me to give up, but I owe it to them. They inspire me. They're part of the reason I've gone public. And, and this is embarrassing. The beach day is a nightmare. It's embarrassing to my kids. Nobody wants to hear about it anymore. I'm a changed person. It's a long time ago. But on the other end, guess who probably got me the most signatures of all? My children's friends, my children's friends' family. You know what I mean? So I'm doing what I need to do, but we all want to move forward. It's time. We've paid our price. We've changed. I, I'll say this to anybody. I am so sorry for that day. I, I can never explain my sorrow and, and everything. And that's why I've gone so far to change. That's why I borrowed money against mine and the children's, my parents' house, to put myself through school, not knowing for sure, not being guaranteed of getting this license. I believe in me. I believe in what I'm doing. I believe in the other people with felonies. And I also owe this to people who haven't gotten out alive, who the people with substance use disorder, very dear friends of mine who, you know, I, I've shared this too. My life was saved by Narcan twice. I made some promises to God and to people who weren't saved. And I need to act on those promises. And that's what I'm doing. Well, and you talk about being by the finish line and that's, it's so appropriate because we're going to talk for a moment to also the guy who who holds the pen, who talks in uh, you know sports analogies quite often about getting on the field and calling balls and strikes. Uh, what's your message to the governor who has the pen, who um, thinks it's important to be on the field, being in the game and winning uh, the right fights, the right battles? What do you say to the fellow with the pen who can make this happen? So. What would you like to share with him if he's listening right yeah, now? I, uh, I have read his statements when he's vetoed legislation. I've read his statements when he signed legislation. I saw him at the COVID briefing the other day when he spoke, when a reporter asked about my case. I, I truly believe to the fiber of my soul, he cares and he's behind this. I think he's not aware of the barriers we're facing to get it done. I give my word. I'll volunteer. I'll help but I need your help first. I need you to help me <laughs> to empower others. And so again, um, you know, governor, please, this is critical. Um, and really more than anything else, I would ask on behalf of my kids. I have uh, paid a high enough price. My family has endured enough. And this has been just, just not an easy road. It's 13 years and Please give me a second chance, which will lighten their load, which will allow me to help others. And then, you know, from a mental health perspective and then um, 
please, let's work together on getting an A. Listen, I graduated Monmouth with straight A's. I graduated University of New Haven with straight A's. I'm an A student. I can get New Jersey an A. I promise. We can turn that D into an A, and I'm willing to volunteer and do whatever's needed. But, uh, you know, I need a chance. I'm begging. I'm begging for mercy. You know, you're fighting for so many folks, and I'm I'm pretty confident that uh, he'll he'll be a clicking that pen and and signing the appropriate documents for you and so many other thousands of people who fall into the criteria that the state has established. And also as a public policy directive, it sounds like it fits very uh, tightly with his own goals and values. So I think that uh, you're going to find a positive result at the end of this rainbow, which brings us to an extremely important audience. And I wanted to be able to wrap with one of the most important, important audiences you know, for you in this journey is your family. What would you like to share with them? Because they're seeing you do yeoman's work and really it's such a huge lift over such a long time with such deep impacts that go well beyond your immediate community uh, as evidenced by nearly 10,000 signatures, as evidenced by state senators and assemblymen and assemblywomen who are behind you, local leaders, mayors and councilmen and committee people. What would you like to share with your uh, your family, your kids, as we uh, wrap up this uh, wonderful interview? Uh, that's my kids are um, they're my heroes. They're my inspiration. They're my motivation. They are the most resilient, forgiving, insightful people I know. And, um, you know, self-forgiveness has not come easy. I try to take each day and be the best mom I can. Um, during the time since, um, you know, I've gotten sober, my dad died tragically in 2014 and my mom died of a broken heart within just about a year. And I say to my mom and dad, thank you because things you left in place have allowed me to keep my head above water. And, um, you know, they're, you know, I, you know, just, I love them. You know, I'm not going to keep saying sorry because they don't even want to hear it anymore. They're fine with things. And, um, but you know, I couldn't do it without them. And it's so important. I could never be where I am without my family. So I love my children. I love my parents. I got a baby brother who's just amazing. And, um, I'm just so grateful to everyone, to people like you, to everyone, because I know people care. And that in my dark times reminds me, I've got too many people, watching so to speak too many people depending on me to keep keep telling the story and keep being heard because this is in everybody's best interest and benefit it truly is well it's so well said nikki and you know you've now passed the ball to the governor today and we'll see very soon if he can go ahead and yeah i want the assist okay i don't pass often i I broke 1,500 in uh, high school and 1,200 in college. So a pass from Nikki Tierney means a lot. I haven't asked any of my teammates. <laughs> well, I look forward to hear, hearing, hearing uh, the crowd cheer as, uh, as both of you, uh, you know, score the, score the final, final goal on, on, this, on, on this round of whatever sport it may be playing. But this, this sport is real. This is yeah. real life. These are real people. These are real situations, real legislation, and a real impact for the state of New Jersey. I can't thank you enough for sharing your story, sharing your time. And I look forward to you getting great feedback on folks hearing your message and it resonates with them and that they act proactively to help not just Nikki, but all of the Nikki's out there that you're quarterbacking for the ones that, you know, and the ones that we don't know about 
who have succeeded and want to grow and they're held back by this Gordian knot that can be cut through with the with a, a pen in the hands of Governor yeah. Phil Murphy. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank today, you so much. Nikki. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. You too. Stay Thank well. You.